Welcome to the Inter-Christianity Podcast. I am Isaac. I am joined again by Zephaniah and Angela. And we also have another guest with us today who I will introduce shortly. But today we'll be talking about the difficult issue of Old Testament violence, particularly violence that appears to have been commanded or sanctioned by God. Atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, said this, Quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Oh, quite a mouthful there. I almost ran out of breath. But beyond new atheist rants, many people, including Christians, will admit that these passages are some of the most difficult challenges to the faith, and they have been very troubled by certain passages in the Old Testament that speak of the Israelites wiping out an entire city including women and children. For example, at the end of the famous Jericho narrative, it says, They, the Israelites, utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox, sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. That's Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. So how can we say that God is perfectly good if he approves what looks like genocide? So this is a pretty heavy topic, and... I think particularly for younger Christians, it's have a resurgence of, of concern. And so I'm bringing one on, a member of Generation Z. So it's my friend, Theo. Theo, you want to introduce yourself beyond that? Hey, what's up? My name's Theo. I'm a grad student right now with no seminary education, but I'm just a nerd that likes this stuff. Yeah, this is a passage that I've always, I read as a kid very early on because um, I'm a pastor's kid. And so at one point, one of my parents or both my parents were pastors. And so, you know, I was exposed to a lot of the stuff and was pretty disturbing. But I think for a long time, I sort of just put it in the back burner and didn't think much about it until very, very recently. So um, this will be fun. You know, I read that very long quote from Richard Dawkins. And obviously, it's, a, it's written in a very antagonistic way. But does he have some sort of point? Can a good God command the Israelites to wipe out an entire city, including women and children? And if not, is there other way? Is there another way to read these passages that would be better? Yeah, I think my initial response is God can technically do everything and anything he wants to do because he's God. And I think the question more so is, is he good? And that's like, obviously, the debate is the goodness and love of God displayed in these commands. I know it's like a cop out to say that, but God can do whatever he pleases. And like, we have no say in that. But thankfully, I trust and believe and have faith that God is good despite these things. But that's all I will say for now. I think for me, when you're reading through it, there's just a lot of interesting things like like a geographical distance and then wars that are having specific bands or non-bands and then places that have to be utterly annihilated versus sometimes if depending on how they react if they surrender or open their gates then only the men have to be killed and so it just there's a lot of like tedious kind of legal things there and so i think that's where we have to do careful reading and even if it goes against what we initially think i think one thing that helps me process is in habakkuk when 
he's asking God what he's going to do. And God says, well, here's my plan. And he's like, why are you using them to correct the sins of the Israelites? And God's like, you may not understand what I'm doing, but I do have a plan in motion. And so I think putting that all in perspective, like, sure, it makes me uneasy, but I, I'm trying not to turn away from the word of God, if that makes sense, but to keep embracing it. Okay, so y'all's response kind of broadly is, I may not know how to explain these immediately, but I trust that God is good because of other reasons yeah. that you might have. Okay. Yeah. And that's probably a, a, a standard response for many evangelicals. But then, the, you know, the question remains like, well, how do we make sense of it? Especially if we're going to explain it to, especially non-believers, but even fellow believers who are having real kind of issue with what's going on. So Theo, what's your initial response to both Richard Dawkins quote or like the passage I read? Yeah, this is really difficult because I think, and I guess some preliminary remarks is that this is very different from, for example, when God strikes down um, Ananias and Sapphira. You know, these were people who had deceived um, the church and God's act of, you know, taking their lives was a very specific punishment onto two specific people. What we have here, however, in the passage of Joshua is basically a corporate killing. In certain passages, like cited in Joshua, but also in Deuteronomy, God is commanding the Israelites to sort of wipe out all living things in a specific region. And so, you know, presumably, like even even if we say, oh, the leaders or the men in the household were were evil, but the women and children, you know, they have no such authority to do anything like that. They're also wiped out. And I think that makes it harder for especially this generation, I think the past, I mean, just just in a sort of modern Western context to stomach, because we we recognize that, A, this is sort of God's commanding of punishment, right? Presumably this killing is a way for God to purify the land and for him to say, this is me punishing the Canaanites for their evil sins. But it seems like it's directed at everyone. It's not, you know, in, in our sort of modern, you know, Western context, we, we see punishment as directed towards the individual of the wrongdoers. Whereas the sort of entire culture is swept up and in, uh, the entire people is swept up. And I think that's, for me, what makes it a lot harder to grasp. Because, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think God does have a right to sort of take life however he pleases. But at the same time, you know, we, you know, when we understand God's prerogative and sort of his authority, we also sort of have to mix it and analyze it with his justice or his goodness or him being loving. And then, you know, this sort of has us pause and ask, well, how does this command, if God was to command this, how does that reflect the sort of complete nature of God? And if it doesn't, then we really have to think hard as to as how it, it's supposed to or if it, if it does at all. And so I think for me, it's, it's hard to give a yes or no answer, but I think for me, most likely lean towards no, not because I don't think God doesn't have a right to do that, but it seems implausible, at least in my lights, that God would issue such a command as extreme as, you know, wiping out a city. Yeah, so I'm detecting kind of slightly different approaches. I think the more conservative evangelical tendency would be kind of going from, I know God is good. Therefore, when I look at these passages, even though this passage might be troubling to me, I still believe that God has a reason for it. And I think for Theo, as for other Christians, you're coming at it more like, okay, I'm looking at these passages and I immediately detect that it's bad. Genocide 
or what looks like genocide. I mean, we maybe we can quibble with the definition of genocide later, but I get, I don't think it matters that much. Um, it, it's bad. Therefore, there's no way a good God could have done this, or at least we should really doubt that God really did what these passages might seem to teach on, on face value. Then let's get kind of more into specifics then. Like, how should we read these passages? Should we, like John Piper, let me read a quote from John Piper. John Piper said, It's right for God to slaughter women and children anytime he pleases. God gives life and he takes life. Everybody who dies, dies because God wills that they die. God is taking life every day. He will take 50,000 lives today. God decides when your last heartbeat will be and whether it ends through cancer or a bullet wound. God is not beholden to us at all. He doesn't owe us anything. Do you think that's a good way to approach this topic? Because I think even some conservative Christians would be like, I don't know about that one. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that Theo brought up Ananias' fire. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're saying that it's between individuals in the New Testament versus corporate in the Old Testament. But what I find interesting is that, at least in both cases, the way that I'm viewing it, it seems to be more so about religious purity than racial purity. It, it does sound very terrible, but I don't see it how Piper would see it, because I, I think the way that I'm viewing scripture is the Canaanites in the area like some of them that were living around the Israelites were actually related to the Israelites. And so for some of them to be wiped out, it wasn't without cause per se. So when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they were asking aid to basically like their cousins and their cousins rejected them or would pick on them, take advantage of them. And so in a way, God was serving justice to how these people behave towards the Israelites. And it, does sound kind of weird like why would he wipe these people out well it's because the way that they worship their gods would be through sex right and so i think intermarriage was frowned upon because if you sleep with them then you're basically accepting the type of rituals that they had in their temples or the gods that they worshiped i mean there's definitely different things too besides that but i guess my point that i'm trying to make is more so like there seems to be this protection of like what they believe in versus hey, we're just going to go out and slaughter people. Uh, sure. I think most people would, would agree that you know that was one of God's reasons. Like It is for the land, the purity of the land and the purity of um, the Israelite belief, even though that didn't turn out that way because they followed after false gods anyway. But the problem people have is, one, it sounds very different than the God of the New Testament, quote-unquote, where Jesus is running around talking about mercy and loving your enemies. This doesn't sound like that at all. And then secondly, even if it was granted that, you know, the Canaanites were just awful people, like why children? So I think that's kind of the moral intuition a lot of people are having when they're addressing this problem. And it, and it makes people think that there's no way I can believe in this God, or at least if they're a believer, they might question their faith or start really questioning whether or not they should believe in doctrines like inerrancy, for example. That's kind of what's at stake. So how would you take these passages? Well, before we move on, I think we need to address the quote you brought up, John Piper's quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't really talk uh -huh. about it. So before we move on to Theo's, like I can see and agree to a certain extent John Piper's quote. God has the right to do whatever he pleases. He's the author of life and he can choose whenever to take it away. And like I think the assumption a lot of times when people say it's not fair is that 
people are innocent, even children, children are innocent. And that's why there's the moral tension that I see is like, oh, these people did nothing wrong. And yet God commanded these horrible killings. And so when you approach in that way, like, yeah, it looks terrible and it seems terrible. But I think when there's an assumption that no one is innocent and there is to some extent a price for sin, which is death, that in that way, objectively, I can see why John Piper is saying what he's saying. And he's, I mean, super Calvinist, so if it's very fitting <laughs> to like that approach, <laughs> plug episode on Calvinism. <laughs> no, but really, I think objectively, when we see it like that, like I can see where John Piper is coming from. Is it the best approach? Do I agree with that approach? No. Like, I think there's more context to the Canaanites and the killings and all that that we'll get into later. But I just wanted to acknowledge that quote and that perspective. Like, I think a lot of times humans are so entitled to like what they think justice is or how God should act or how innocent and good people are. And that that's what kind of that worldview frames how people come into it. And I think that needs to be taken away first. Like when we evaluate where people really are in front of a holy and perfect good God, then it kind of frames the perspective better. But again, I don't agree with his approach, but I can see why he's approaching it that way. And there's definitely more going on in the passages of the Canaanites that we're bringing up. So I just wanted to acknowledge that before Theo shares his opinion. Yeah, I think with Piper's quote, that's definitely a hard pass for me. I'm not sure how so, sort of what was Piper thinking if he was addressing these passages, because I think when we look at these passages, God is commanding the Israelites to do these these acts of conquering and killing. Whereas in Piper's quote, he's saying presumably God can just do whatever he wants. Like, you know, if if we're all just talking and God just like snaps his metaphorical fingers and we all just stop living, right? Um, there seems to be a big, big difference between these two actions. And maybe Piper might say like, oh yeah, well, let's extend that. Let's say that, you know, it's not just that God can do whatever he pleases. God can also command whatever he pleases. That's where I find myself disagreeing. And here's a good example, I guess. In 2013, 2012, 2013, you know, um, in the Middle East, there was a surge in ISIS. When we look at their, from their perspective, being devout Muslims and seeing that, you know, this is almost like Allah's hand at work, literally, right? And this holy war against the evil West and the rest of the world, they were doing a lot of things, right? Such as capturing women and enslaving them, sexually enslaving them. And presumably, according to their thought leaders, they say, hey, God approves of this. And actually God commands this. From our perspective, looking towards that, we say, oh my gosh, God would never command that. I think this hits a, this hits a really interesting conversation as to how we, you know, the interaction between God's commands and then what we sort of judge as morally right or wrong. I think for me, like the, the initial reaction when I hear Piper's quote is that there's almost like a mix of God's doing something, but it's okay because God's doing it. But then the sort of action that is being done seems inherently wrong or really disturbingly odd. And I think that that intuition that's like sort of being rolled out or being brought out is can God do things that we see as immoral or we know is immoral? Piper's quote is definitely too vague and too simplistic. And I think for for any sort of believer that, or especially new believer that's wrestling and coming to our perspective and coming to faith through Jesus, right? Seeing through Jesus, this sort of standard 
that they're trying to emulate. And almost as if seeing that this standard is not emulated in other passages or through this quote that uh, Piper has, it's very, very difficult to process through that. How exactly then would you take these passages? So I think I want to preface by saying um, these passages are really, really, really hard. Um, I think I think these are probably the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret, especially when it comes to how we in 2022 in the 21st century try to process um, these passages. If I'm understanding this correctly, God is commanding the wholesale killing of men, women, and children. And you know, for some, they may say, no matter how evil these people are, I don't think they deserve that, right? And they may bring in their sort of modern sensibilities. But the point that I'm making here is that these passages are really, really difficult. And I think it's worth everyone's time and effort to wrestle with these passages. I think especially like for my upbringing for a long time, you know, I kind of just sort of tossed it in the back burner. I said, hey, like, I know God's good. And so God's commands are good. And so there's probably a good reason why God will command these things. And, you know, even though I don't really know how to think about these things, I'll just sort of take it for what it's worth and leave it for now. And then coming back, rereading these passages and then seeing people's comments and then reading through some other commentaries and other uh, scholars on this, I realized just how difficult these passages are. When when we get to the sort of different views as how they they try to resolve these things, there's really no easy answer. And each answer bears like a cost to it. For me, I think the sort of move to say dismiss them say like, you know what, I just think this is just, these passages are just false. I think that's too hasty. And I think for, for some believers that that's just not an option, right? Especially if they're, if they're raised with a very sort of high respect for the Bible, a high view on the authority of the Bible, this is not an option for them to just dismiss that. But I think also just wholesale accepting it, I guess doing, doing the Piper would also not be very good either. Cause I think a, that would be too naive because there's a lot of things that we can do and a lot of tools that we have to analyze these passages. Um, but B, these passages, you know, if if this seems wrong to someone, but then they're just going to sort of force themselves to accept it. I think long term, this creates a lot of conflict within their faith. I have a lot of friends now that are slowly leaving the church. And this sort of wave of just people slowly leaving and drifting apart, part of it is that they didn't receive a good proper sort of education on the Bible or thinking about God for them to sort of encounter these passages you know, this makes it worse, especially for people that are struggling with their faith a lot. Okay, so let me let me introduce a few approaches and see which ones y'all like and don't like. So one of them is from a guy named Gregory Boyd. He believes these passages reflect the mistaken views of the Israelites that God really wanted them to go and kill these people. Greg Boyd is more of a pacifist. He thinks it is impossible for God to really have commanded something so heinous in his view. So he believes in biblical infallibility, but he wants to nuance it and say like, yes, the Bible's inspired, but what God really wanted for them is to go into the land and just trust that he'll provide for them. And the Israelites mistakenly attributed to God these kind of violent acts. Now God allowed that to happen because God is an accommodating God. He, he meets people where they're at in their particular culture and time. And so he has what he calls a cruciform hermeneutic. So he thinks that God allowed himself to look ugly so that he will eventually bring beauty out of it, similar to the cross. Christians look at it as like what initially looks ugly 
leads to salvation. And, and here is like, oh, what initially looks ugly to us because of these people's mistakes, God's still going to bring redemption out of it. So that's one take. Another take is by a guy named Randall Rouser, who thinks that similarly, God did not really command these things. There's no way for God, a good God to do that. But God allowed and, and intended for these things to be in the Bible because there's a particular purpose in seeing these passages in the Bible um, so that we can look back and maybe see how far we've come or like, you know, see the progression of Revelation or something along those lines. And then there's another view by a guy named Peter Enns who believes that the way these passages are framed, the Israelites to justify what they did, to rationalize what they did in killing all these people, they kind of use typical propaganda-like passages that are in other cultures too in the ancient Near East to attribute what they did to their God. And that's really, for him, like that's the most historical and culturally fitting explanation as to what these passages are, and we don't need as Christians to try to run around justifying them. Then there are Christians who are more conservative, like Paul Copen, who also don't think we should read these passages at face value, but he'll argue for certain things like, okay, there are typical ancient Near East war language, like kind of bravado, kind of like how we would say, like in sports, you know, my team annihilated this other team. We don't literally, literally mean annihilated. It just means you beat them. And similarly, a lot of the language in the Bible, when it says, kill everybody in the city, we know that didn't actually happen because these people pop up later in the Bible. And then we also see it in other ancient Near Eastern texts that these, this is the kind of language they use. So those are some of the different approaches. Theo, which one sounds good to you? I take a blend. So I, I lean, so I'm, I'm in between Rouser and Enz's view, but I lean strongly towards Peter Enz's view. Result of Peter Enz's view is that Peter Enz actually denies inerrancy. And so even though he considers himself to be an evangelical, which I'm not fully certain on either, but I think the way that I would sort of look at the passages is that, hey, the behaviors of the Israelites in these passages were similar enough to the different, the neighboring Middle Eastern cultures and the, the, the neighboring uh, ethnic groups and how they conducted war. And not just that, but the justifications and the way that they give praise to, to their God is also very similar. And Peter N sort of, for his little cute analogy is, it's almost like a, it's almost like schoolyard talk where, you know, kids at recess are trying to brag about how great their dad is, right? And there's rules to the game of how, how you brag about your dad. You, you sort of take these themes and sort of, and sort of comb this and say, yeah, like they probably justify this in light of what they saw as holy war. Because for example, you know, the ancient Babylonians, when they went to war, you know, the king of Babylon would always dress in a way that's supposed to reflect the sort of chief god of the Babylonians, which is called Marduk. Right. You can imagine from a sort of religious Babylonian's perspective, this is holy war. Like we're, whenever we're going out to fight, it's always holy war. And so this seems to match the Israelites' behavior and their justifications too, but then also their actions, right? Like taking captive of the women, right? And taking them as their wives or, you know, conquering the land and purifying it. These, these ideas seem very, very, very similar or similar enough that it reflects a sort of local culture that it would make sense, I think, for Peter Enns, and I think for me, that this is the way that the Israelites at that time understood God. 
so I think I think Boyd is really helpful here, and I think we can we can look at certain biblical elements to see like, hey, there are there were devout Israelites who deeply misunderstood God, and I think the best example here, though it's just one, is Jephthah. Him being a devout judge, he ends up committing child sacrifice. He sacrifices his own daughter because he makes this foolish vow that whoever walks into the door next, he's going to sacrifice him. And lo and behold, it's his daughter, but he's going to sacrifice him, sacrifice her to, to Yahweh. But we know that God. Now, like we now know that God never would have condoned child sacrifices, but Jephthah still does that, and yet we still look at Jephthah as a sort of person who strove to to be the most faithful that he could be to Yahweh. Yeah. But we can understand that his understanding was very, very, very deeply flawed. What I'm getting is that God did not actually command these things. The upshot of that is that we don't have to try to defend these passages. The downside potentially is that clearly you cannot have a standard evangelical definition of inerrancy if you hold to that view. So I know that was a lot. Y'all have any responses to what these different views are or what Theo thinks about these passages? No, I, I would say that there's definitely a lot of interesting things. So he brought up Jephthah, the judge. I would agree that he was flawed in his understanding of God, but I wouldn't agree that he was devout because he was part Canaanite. So I would also agree that him taking in the culture around him may be influenced, and he also maybe spoke too rashly. I also think that there's a situation with Jehu when he was anointed king and he's supposed to annihilate Ahab's family, but he's actually condemned in Hosea because he took it too far. And so it, it seems like we can be chosen to accomplish God's will and still make mistakes. And God's not condoning those mistakes, but what's recorded, kind of like what Isaac was saying earlier, what's recorded is to show us that people struggled in understanding what they were supposed to do for God. And I think that's helpful for me. And so I think for me, it's like we see consistently throughout the progression of scripture, difficult times and moments. I don't necessarily take it literally that these people are dying, but I can't disconnect that these are laws that God stated. So I think for me, it's more so a hermeneutical issue. Like I think the Israelites, when they're interpreting the law, they, they did what they thought was best versus like, this is God's universal command, like kill, annihilate. So just to try to get more clarity. So like, I think the difference too, with even a passage like Jephthah in Judges 11 is that nowhere in the text does it state that God approved of what Jephthah did to his daughter. If you interpret right. it that he actually sacrificed his daughter, not everyone does. And so there, there is a, often a distinction in the Bible between descriptive and prescriptive. Like sometimes the Bible just records messed up things, but obviously not in a way that right. is like, you're supposed mm -hmm. to emulate these things. I think what's the challenge though, with these conquest passages is that it seems like God is being attributed as being the one who's commanded these things to happen. So it's not just like sinful people doing dumb stuff. It's no, God is telling the Israelites to do this, kill these people, utterly wipe them out. So I think that's one, that's the big challenge. And then two, I think, Zephaniah, are you saying that then, are you agreeing that they wrongly attributed these things to God? Or are you saying that, what, what exactly are you saying? I'm trying to say like the law that God handed to them, like that was right. there. But I think a lot of times the Israelites misunderstood the stipulation. So when Samuel tells Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. Like, I want you to obey God. I don't want you to think about ways that could, you know, you think would please God because you saved all these animals when you're supposed to kill them. 
So I think when I'm reading it, uh, it is difficult, but for me, it's more so about how God decided to set apart the Israelites. And so I think at the time, because they were a weak nation, God was fighting like for them, but not with them. If that makes sense. Like, so I think using the book of Judges again, when the Israelites were relying on God, he was helping them win. But when they started relying on themselves or getting scared about the Canaanites and the military strength, then that's when they started losing. It's diff- it is difficult to accept, but like I'm more so the type that you can't necessarily like try to explain it away, but try to better understand it. And so I do take it as like these commands are there. I wouldn't say they're always literal, but they are okay. there. So the so the Israelites were yeah. following God's word. He did he did command these things, but he had reasons, particularly to protect this fledgling nation that would one day be the uh the nation of the messiah i guess and i also know it's not like satisfactory but that's just like how i'm okay. progressing okay it. angela you have any thoughts yeah i feel like there's so many tangents um <laughs> that i'm like trying to focus but from what i understand the original line of thought was did god really say it like you know basically yeah. did god mm-hmm. really command that's like the yeah. core question and for me and- it's like i will not trade inerrancy for like the potential of like, oh yeah, there's a different explanation for God's goodness. I believe the Bible is inerrant. Therefore, I believe like God commanded it because it says it right there very plainly. So then my next step would be like, why did God command it? And what are my measurements for evaluating the goodness of God Mm -hmm. and the goodness of this command? What makes me think that my standard of goodness is greater than or like different than and so evaluating not only my understanding but my standards and why i have those standards and if it's different from god's standards like is it better is it worse like that's the kind of like thought process that i take because i believe the bible is inerrant and because i believe the commands are there and i have my reasons for why i believe God might have commanded it. I don't fully 100% understand. And there are still tensions, even with some of the conclusions I've arrived to. But like Mm -hmm. the core question of, yes, I do believe because the Bible says, and there's definitely cultural context, like Theo was saying. And it's so different from our modern, postmodern context, right? So like, there's just like different barriers to that, but that's kind of where I'm at. Would you say, Angela, that even for Paul Copen, his way of trying to, you know, talk about war language as well as talking about, you know, the city of Jericho. We have every reason to believe based upon what we know about the area in archaeology that it was not really a city. It was more of a military outpost. Do you think those explanations are unnecessary or should we, is there still value in trying to do that in order to, for lack of a better term, rescue the goodness of God? these passages yeah yeah i definitely like appreciate again john piper is like kind of extreme and saying like it is what it is you know like but then with paul like it's like i kind of lean that way like i believe that there are better explanations to why to give us better understanding like like you said one example is like yeah it's just to wipe out everyone but later on you see examples and evidence of people still living so there's obviously something going on there beyond just a total wipeout because there's people still living. And like there's examples, like I think Rahab was 
a Canaanite, right? Yes, she was. And she wasn't wiped out because, you know, she helped and repented. And so I think there's like obviously examples of that being a possibility. But since the Bible doesn't say for sure, like I'm not going to put my, all my chips in and say, yeah, that's what it is. But obviously there's something beyond what we know. But I don't think we need to rescue the goodness of God because, yeah. but I, obviously I want to explain and understand like, and know that there's something greater going on here. So you think the proper Christian response is, hey, these passages might be difficult. There might be some explanations here and there, but it's important for Christians to hold to this view of scripture that it is inerrant. And we can't give that up just because we find these passages difficult. Like that's just not a, a good option. That's kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because our generation is so easily attracted to the goodness, quote unquote, like the easy aspects of God, the loving peace. And then we forget, oh yeah, Jesus told us to cut off our hands if it causes us to sin. Hello? Like, that's pretty intense. Like, and like, if anything, Jesus is a little more intense than he looks at the inner versus the external behaviors and things like that. And so I think I just want to be careful not to be picky with only the good and like only the nice parts of Jesus and God and but I'm not I'm not trying to devalue like these hard questions because I still wrestle with it but yes I agree like with what you're saying like we need to say yes to the whole aspect of scripture and not try to explain away the hearts of by saying it that's not really what happened okay so Theo why do you think it's worth it then to potentially give up a standard definition of inerrancy. Like, why do you think that's worth the trade-off, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think for me, the, the reason why I, I don't see this as costly as, as I think other evangelicals would, inerrancy is a very, very theological concept. And sort of my interest and what I think is the best way to read the Bible usually starts on sort of interpretive grounds. Instead of reading it from a theological lens of its top down, I'm looking at the hermeneutics, how we interpret it, looking at all the evidence that we have, the historical, the archaeological, what we know about social culture, and sort of construct an interpretation from the ground up. Uh, sometimes in conversations, you know, when we sort of bring in all the evidence and we sort of start going through certain options, you know, some, some Christians may say, you know what, like these options aren't, aren't for me because I hold to inerrancy. And for me, I, I think the theological concept of inerrancy is, is meant to sort of solidify our understanding of the bible in a very sort of how do i say this not modern but it's more concerned with the sort of theological aspect of the bible whereas when i'm reading these passages there is a sort of theological aspect that we ought to consider right such as you know god's commands on these things and would god do these things and those type of um, questions but then there's sort of a separate there's a sort of separate other questions about the sort of historical and archaeological aspects of it and, and sort of what picture does that give me that I think is the most plausible. And both Enns and Rouser, and maybe you, maybe Isaac knows the guy's name, but they both love to quote this one Old Testament professor who, uh, whenever he teaches class sometimes, he'll say, um, God lets his children tell the story. And so both of them sort of like this take this quote as sort of inspiration to really stretch that out and say, what does it mean when God lets his children tell the story? Part of me almost sees inerrancy as a separate question. I don't think it's a good idea for me to sort of have a theological lens determine my interpretation if history and other evidences give me reasons to reject that reading. So I guess one quick good example is Al Mohler. 
which some of y'all may know. When he writes on inerrancy, he basically takes a sort of naive or like the sort of basic, like strong Chicago view of inerrancy. And he just says, yeah, if this part of the passage or this part of the Bible is recording like it's history, um, then I'm going to accept all of it as history. For example, in the story of Jericho, right, the Israelites encounter what is described as this huge fortress city with these huge walls that the Israelites could never hope to conquer on their own. and need to rely on Yahweh to give them these instructions to march around the city for, and for God to cause the walls to crumble. It is because of God that the Israelites won. Well, the best evidence that we have in archaeology is that actually Jericho is like an, a military outpost and we don't have much evidence of a wall. Then for me, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't think Al Mohler's view is acceptable based on the evidence that we have. And for me, I either modify my view of inerrancy or I deny it, right? And that's where I'm at. I'm in between one of the two because I think we can still modify inerrancy to an acceptable level where we allow for these types of nuances to come in. I'm not sure how tenable it is uh, for Christians that really want to sort of look at the Bible holistically. Let me try to hone it down into a very practical question. Let's say, you know, someone in church, in your church, comes up to you and is like, what's up with these passages, man? These are sound horrifying. Two basic approaches would be, one, hey, that's what the Bible teaches. This is one of the hard teachings. We have to accept it. We try to understand it, but also accept it for what it is. Because otherwise, giving up inerrancy is kind of like a slippery slope. Because you start treating the Bible as a menu. I'm going to pick and choose what things I like and don't like. Well, rather than letting the Bible authoritatively speak to my life. The other approach is like, hey man, I'm with you. I think these passages are freaking terrible. And so here are maybe other ways that as a Christian you can interpret them. Especially let's say this is a non-believer and you're trying to share the gospel with this person. And so... Don't worry too much about those passages because I agree with you. That's terrible. God did not actually command these things. The Israelites either made a mistake or something else was going on here. So don't worry about it. Here's Jesus over here. <laughs> let me share you. Let me share Jesus with you. Theo, would you say that latter approach you would like better? Yeah, I think this is where I really appreciate uh, Peter Enns' view on this when it comes to like teaching the Bible to congregants and to children. Peter Ernst, like sometimes he'll like open up his podcast or his articles with stories about how like some of his parents, some of the parents at his church will go and be like, yeah, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to get my kid to like read through the Bible and we're going through a reading plan and we're starting all the way in Genesis. And Peter, Peter Ernst is always like, it's pretty dark. Maybe that's not the best idea. <laughs> and I think the main focus of the Bible and the main focus of Christianity as a whole is Jesus on the cross and Jesus out of the grave and you his would, life mystery. So you would reject that slippery slope kind of argument that, hey, if you start, because you, it offends your sensibilities, so to speak, you start rejecting some of these passages, why not even skip over to the New Testament? There are some Christians who do this, by the way. They say, like, I don't like what this says about homosexuality. I don't like that, so I'm going to kind of jump through interpretive hoops to try to make it sound, say something different. Do you think that's a, a fair concern and angela and z y'all can jump into if you think this is actually like that's a that's a valid point i mean i think it's a fair concern because i think we we don't want to give an impression that christians can just sort of just pick and choose what they want to think um but at the same time i i do find this really agree that this is a concern i think it's also in some ways the way that it's sort of 
the concern is sort of presented as overblown um, or maybe too exaggerated. The vocabulary we constantly use, which is like, oh, if this passage is here, like we should submit, we should submit, we should submit. I'm not fully sure if that's if that's always the right attitude, right? Because if we just look at the Bible, for example, yes, there's submission, but there's also deep struggle. I would love one day, you know, going to a church to see someone pray a prayer in Psalms where he's just yelling at God. That would be such a great prayer, but it also would be very biblical, right? And I think I think there's one of the big virtues of of a Christian is if they struggle with their faith and they wrestle and think hard about it. For me, that's a that's usually a good sign of sort of a, a Christian with a very with a faith that will have longevity. The the overall picture that I want is that I'd rather have a Christian struggle and maybe have some opinions like, yeah, I don't really like a lot of the Old Testament. I'm just going to stick with the New Testament, or I don't I don't know if I agree with Paul's teaching on homosexuality, or I don't know if I agree with this or this or this. You know, for me, I'd rather have that than someone who just sort of accepts all of it, but then is, is but then doesn't sort of take the time to process and think through all the different issues at hand. Okay, so then for Angela and Z, that scenario I'm bringing up, you know, what would you say to that person? How would you justify to that person, no, a good God can actually do these things? I agree that we should struggle through our faith, but I think my approach is a little different from Theo's where I try to appeal more to God's character and focusing on the qualities of his character versus, oh, if you don't agree with this, you drop it. Because I think that's, it presents this false kind of like dichotomy where, oh, uh, if I, you know, I encounter something that breaks my mindset on inerrancy, I, I must drop it. And so I think, like we've been discussing, there's definitely nuances. People have different spectrums on inerrancy as well. So if this person were to come, I would be like, yeah, it is difficult to process. And so I think when they see that you're willing to help them process through it, instead of going, oh, you're dumb, just accept it. It's the word of God, much like the older generation that we have. And I think that hurts like what Theo is trying to say, the development of the thinker, because then you're just like, oh, I must be bad. You know, I'm not going to think through it. I'm just going to blindly accept. So I think, I think if you walk with the young believer through that, even if they're not satisfied with the answer, at least you're showing them we need to struggle through it. Yeah, I feel like there's um, two different conversations now, one on inerrancy and then one on the Old Testament violence. Comment on inerrancy, like, yeah, I think it becomes a slippery slope for sure when it comes to inerrancy. Like you said, Isaac, it becomes like a menu. Like, So why is it that we can pick and choose with the Old Testament violence versus like homosexuality? You can push the line. And you can push for evidence that's outside of bi- the Bible, which is fine. It's just, I think there's limitations to evidence outside of Bible. And it's just constantly changing and you're limited by the, these quote-unquote evidences. Um, but that's like a whole different matter. I think inerrancy is a different conversation. But yes, I, I hold to the idea of inerrancy, obviously. We have to take the Bible as a whole. We can't pick and choose. With God, we can't pick and choose. I'm, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing, Theo. But I am saying like when we step outside of that, it becomes a little dangerous. And I want to stay within the boundaries that I believe God has set for us. Now, concerning the guy who's like coming up to be like, yo, what the heck? This is crazy. Like, I don't know what I feel or think about it. Like for me, it's like, okay, well, this is what scripture says. Like, let's evaluate. Then why is this happening? And again, it's, I believe there's explanations to why this happened, whether that's a different understanding of the command of like, wipe out everyone, 
there being an opportunity for life for those who repent like Rahab, God having 400 years of patience for repentance for all of the people groups. I think that's in Genesis something. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And then Genesis 15. Yeah. 15, 16 or something like how there's this idea that God was waiting. Why are we forgetting God is a God of justice? And the people of the Canaanite, yo, they were crazy. They bestiality, incest, child sacrifice, all the things. That was what they did. And, you know, like, it's just like, whoa, like, why don't we talk about that? Again, what is our standard? Why do we think it's better? Or there's a fuller picture. And yeah, like Z said, I appeal to the character of God and I trust that he is just and good. And so evaluating the whole of scripture and balancing and weighing out these different aspects. And so that's kind of my approach is like, well, let's see holistically what's going on to try and understand it. I understand that takes faith and that takes knowing and trusting that aspect of God. So pointing to the sin of the Canaanites, uh, pointing to God's justice, his holiness, you know, that is pretty common for evangelicals to respond in this way. What if that person responds, let me grant that. Why then non-combatants like women, and even if we were to say women are also sinful and responsible, why then the children? How would you respond to that person if he brings up the kids? Yeah, I think that's, for me, is where I struggle the most. And honestly, like I haven't come to a good conclusion other than like hoping and trusting. God's justice and the goodness. Um, some people, I've heard different arguments. I don't know which one I believe, but one of them is that the age of accountability, children to a certain age, like don't have like free moral will. Yeah, moral responsibility. Yeah. Like they don't know because they're still developing. So if they die by a certain age or pass away, like they're not condemned in like their sins, quote unquote. They're in heaven, so it's all good kind of thing. I'm sorry, I'm saying it so like lightly, but y'all get the point um and then another one is like probably piper would say this they're not innocent (laughs) like they're born into sin everyone's born into sin yeah they're paying for that and then one would say like oh if the parents are taken away the children will die off anyway because no one would take care of them and so it's just kind of how do i say this nicely like you know like just it's gonna happen anyway so kind of I don't know. Yeah, kind of. Man, that sounds yeah. really harsh and very like disconnected, but just so for the sake way, of argument. One way to get to heaven through slaughter. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you could see it as mercy if you think children go to heaven depending on the yeah, age of age. Yeah, and, and like preventing yeah. suffering later on in life. And or like, oh, they they would God knew that they would adopt the practices of their parents anyway and they would make their children suffer and sacrifice their children and teach on and like spread evil more and so it's just like there's different ways to look on it i don't know where i conclude i feel like a lot of them are like like very hard for me to like really accept and like be like yeah that's the one i like you know all of them are very difficult and i i think right now i'm okay with not knowing and i don't want to put any hard lines on to say this is the one but i do think there are different explanations and there's different questions that we'll always have and that's probably one of the questions i'll ask the lord yeah so it seems like in a weird way 
we're kind of reaching almost a consensus in this in the sense of man some of these passages are hard i think the difference is that one side is saying hey i'm going to trust that the bible what it says goes and then i'm going to trust god's character his goodness his justice he knows what he's doing even if i'm troubled by it and the other side is okay that that passage is so bad that we have to reinterpret what's going on so that we aren't foisting upon God something as terrible as genocide or child killing. Um, and that seems to be, Theo, that seems to be your response to that, right? Yep. Okay. Is there any kind of things you'll want to ask each other about your particular views or challenge? Yeah, I have a question for Theo. Just curious, like, where, like how do you draw the lines of when to go beyond scripture and create a different interpretation like homosexuality or transgenderism or even bestiality, <laughs> you know, like just like these different issues, like yeah. why not appeal? Do you know who's, are there pro-bestiality groups out there now? I don't know. Yeah, and pro-pedophilia. <laughs> you know, there's just so many different topics that you can appeal to beyond scripture. Um, and how do you draw those lines and why are those lines like your standard? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's that's always going to be the sort of... um the the million dollar question for anyone that is leans towards or just outright denies inerrancy um i think there's several ways to respond to this uh i think first is that inerrancy itself is sort of about is sort of about the sort of translation and the conceptual the conceptual correctness of how it's passed down but we would say something like yeah but we we would still hold to infallibility so we can deny inerrancy and hold to infallibility and so we would still say that you know the bible what the bible teaches is still all good and it's still all correct. It's just that we want to interpret these things differently. And so, yeah, like I think I think that that that'll be one potential response is to, is to really sort of hash out that distinction between infallibility and inerrancy. Another thing I I, I would probably say is, and this will probably be, this is my take, like my personal take on it, which is I guess it's kind of a hot take. But you know, like I think when I look at the New Testament and I compare it to the Old Testament, the biggest thing that I that strikes me with the Old Test with the New Testament is that historically, it's just a lot more reliable. And there are narrative accounts within the sort of, it's focused on Jesus, it's focused on few individuals and their own stories. And it gives us a lot more reliability versus the Old Testament, right? I mentioned so about- would you, say, would you say reliability in the sense of evidentiary support that we can find um, in terms of archeology, span as well as how other historiographical methods we can use yeah. on the New Testament, it just comes out better. Exactly. Okay. And not even that, but just continuity, right? Like Irenaeus and other, you know, church fathers, like citing people who were directly discipled by the original apostles, right? Like there's a strong continuity there that a lot of the Old Testament doesn't have. Now there is, I, I think I want to sort of nuance this, like there is good archaeological evidence for a lot of the Old Testament. But I think I think the sort of way that I would that I would sort of see this is that it is also a big interpretive issue. And so like, yeah, like there is a risk of being arbitrary, but I also think that sort of reason gives us a good guide as to how we can sort of hash these out, right? Whereas with the disciples, there's a lot of things that we can get out, understanding the apostles, understanding Paul, understanding Jesus, you know, like Paul did not have much to gain, the apostles did not have much to gain, you know, and that gives us a more clear picture. And also, like, there's there's a lot less sort of directive teachings that are relevant to to the church, whereas with the epistles, there's a lot more to that. So that's that that would be my sort of long winded response to that. So if I'm understanding correctly, because the New Testament is more evidence and 
we're backing to it. You trust that more. And there's less wiggle room versus the Old Testament, which allows for that wiggle room, a.k.a. the violence. Yeah. Okay. When I was in seminary studying the Old Testament, it was very frustrating because there isn't a lot of, especially in the Hebrew text, there's not a lot of like support sometimes for certain things, right? And sometimes words would be used once in all of all the entirety of the scriptures and, and you would just be like, like, why is this here? Uh, but at the same time, I would say we shouldn't throw away the Old Testament so quickly because, you know, it's part of scripture. It's beautiful. There's, there's something there that points to God. So, And I also do want to add that um, sometimes, you know, when we're talking about like these different interpretive approaches, some people are just sort of like interpreting it this way. And it's like, it just seems kind of arbitrary. And it's just like, where's the, like, where, like, where do you draw the line? And I think, I think part of it is that like, as Christians, everyone here, and I think all the views that have been talked about, no matter how crazy they are, everyone has this sort of unified goal to understand the Bible better, understand God better, and to increase your love of God and increase your love of neighbor. And there's a lot of different conclusions that they can draw that are sometimes are just wildly different from one another, but all have this shared commitment. I think sometimes when Christians sort of exit the sort of conventional or traditional pathway of interpreting certain passages, some people may worry and say like, hey, well, like, why are they, like, why are they doing that, you know, if they're committed? And, and, and I think the point here is that like the interpretive lens, like how, how much we can interpret, it's actually a lot more broader than people would like to think. And, and I think for me, just like seeing the diversity of views and seeing the sort of hard work and commitment that a lot of Christians from different perspectives hit at these topics with a deep commitment to God actually for me was, has, has been very, very, very encouraging because I think it's, this is a sign of Christians taking ownership of their faith and trudging forward to wrestle and struggle. Ultimately, all of us have this commitment to move forward and understanding God and the Bible better. Yeah, that's a good word. You know, we encourage the audience to, to wrestle with these passages, to look up different resources and not just abandon the Bible wholesale, but, you know, explore the different ways you can approach these passages, but in a way that's still respectful of the scriptures. I think it's it's a very challenging topic that we all agree that, that it is, and it certainly tugs at our moral intuitions. The purpose of the of this episode was not to kind of come down on a hard and fast answer, but to introduce the issues and to see the landscape of how different Christians have been approaching this topic in order to better understand God and better understand the Bible. If you have any further questions on this, please let us know. Isaac, um, what's your so view? Much we can cover. That's my question. Oh, what's my <laughs> yeah, view? Yeah, what's your view? <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to run away, huh? No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Uh, it better be a hot so I, <laughs> No, I find a lot of... Um, so I did recently read through like Boyd's book and, and Randall Rouser's. And I'm not ready to either reject inerrancy or take up their particular view of inerrancy. I do appreciate Greg Boyd. I've, I've read other works of him. Sometimes, though, he tries too hard to make the Bible fit into his little pet philosophies, so to speak. So since he's like a super pacifist, he doesn't believe God can do anything to hurt anybody. He tries to interpret like the Ananias and Sapphira episode as, no, it's Satan actually was the one who killed them, not God. And I'm just like... 
you're like the only person I've ever read who who thinks that's what that passage says. <laughs> like, come on. Um, yeah, the conclusion is don't be a pacifist or else you interpret the Bible like that. Yeah. Um, I find a lot of what Paul Copen says to be attractive. I do think he's right in terms of the war language and um, the kind of archaeology that we find. Like Jericho was more of a military outpost. It wasn't this ginormous city. That makes more sense too because the Israelites walked around it seven times. Like imagine if you try to walk around a gigantic city seven times good luck with that so i I accept all that i do find the question though even again we can quibble with the definition of genocide but let's just call it lots of killing can god do lots of killing i have to say yes because if god can kill a couple of people because of just reasons why can't that be 200 why can't that be 500 the more difficult top topic would be children and so for that i'm leaning more towards I actually don't think they killed kids because of either just the war, typical war language or like how kids are being interpreted. Like sometimes it's more like, you know, we're thinking like little toddler who's playing with a little chew toy. And maybe it was more like someone who's a youth. You know, they can still be young, but they can still be like dangerous people who are steeped in sin. So that's kind of the way I view it. I guess uh, very quickly, we encourage you to read these different. These different authors wrestle with this topic um, because faith is not supposed to be something easy, but hopefully we all kind of come out at the end trusting more in Jesus and trusting in God's goodness and hopefully having a fuller understanding, a more complex understanding of our own faith. So this has been the Inner Christianity Podcast. Uh, Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.